You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you personally? Brexit process. U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once in a generation a vote. financial crisis. But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Hello and welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast in which we discuss current political events. My name is Neve Quinlan, and with me today is Sheila Brady from the School of Law and Government in DCU, and with whom I will be discussing her PhD research on the visual techniques used by violence organizations. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media via at Dublin LPR. So Sheila, thank you very much for joining me today. And let's just get started by telling our listeners exactly what your research is about. So before I do that, I'd just like to say I'm delighted to be chatting to you about it today. I've listened to many of your podcasts and they're really, really interesting. So um, it's great to have the opportunity to do one myself. So my research is a comparative analysis of videos produced by violence organizations. And by that, I mean extremist gangs, PMCs or mercenaries and militaries. And I'm looking at their videos to examine whether these organizations embed their own videos with cues that they believe will resonate with their viewers in a manner that might help them influence and persuade them both kind of from an attitude point of view but also behaviors and I'm looking specifically at how this influence and persuasion relates in terms of their recruitment and call to action strategies. Okay that's perfect it's very interesting and can I ask which of these violence organizations you're looking at? Yeah, so I started when I set out in the research initially, I was going to only compare extremist groups and gangs. And then I added the military and then I added the PMCs and mercenaries as you go along. And there was real kind of rationale behind that, because initially, when you look at the research individually about these groups, and there's a wealth of it in in relation to the four groups, the comparative element is much more limited. Now, I should say it is, there's a lot in terms of gangs and extremist groups, but as a four, there's not much there. And not only is there not much there in terms of, we'll say, other extremist illegal groups, that element of comparing legal, illegal and quasi-legal, the research in that area is very limited. So I felt by kind of adding this uh, deeper comparison was really contributing to the literature, but also in terms of labeling, many of these groups, especially the illegal groups are labeled not by themselves and therefore are categorized by other groups. And by comparing this, we could look at groups not necessarily because of their label, but their shared use of violence. And that's that's very interesting. And Your findings suggest that these violence organizations you were just talking about, they embed and encode videos with cues that glorify myths and enhance themes of belonging to influence and persuade the viewer. Can you expand on what these cues are and tell me a little bit more about these myths and themes you're referring to? Yeah, so um, I suppose before doing that, I just have to speak a little bit to the theoretical structure, because I think that makes sense in kind of how the cues, how I identify the cues, at least. So if I get sidetracked, please remind me of your question about the five specific cues that I did identify. But in terms of, I suppose, the theoretical approach I took to this, when you look at violence organisations, especially extremists, and you look at their Uh, communication content a lot of it's done within the lens of propaganda and within that lens propaganda is often seen as a negative 
And I felt that that starting point had a kind of an unfair assumption and would lead my research down a path based on, you know, an ill-conceived understanding of propaganda. So I chose to look through the lens of advertising, how these videos and recruitment advertising at that, how these videos act as methods of recruitment and whether violence organisations use specific forms unique to themselves or forms that are actually more apparent and more equal to those in recruitment advertising at large. But because that type of literature isn't there, I really had to draw from a range of literature. And I think what it has really added value to my research in terms of its interdisciplinarity. And I'm happy to explain why I feel that that really benefited if you want me to later. But so I drew on military studies, criminology, terrorism, extremist studies, psychology in relation to persuasion, sociology in relation to group membership, communications, the visual, visual and even to uh, critical geography. And I felt that this was important because even within that complexity, it gave a real kind of clarity of about themes that are central to many of those areas of li literature, but also strength strengthened and were central to my um, comparative analysis of these four groups. So by looking through this lens of advertising, five key areas which where clues are embedded by violence organizations came to the fore and is predominantly what my research is built around and they relate to branding myths the use of techniques of intervisuality multimodalities and masculinity i'm happy if you'd like me to speak a little bit more in relation to those five yes absolutely definitely if you want to get in there and just explain their significance of each of those cues definitely please yeah, so in terms of branding, a lot of the literature that looks, you know, at extremist context kind of often assumes because it's out there, it has an impact and because it's watched, it persuades. And the literature that we'll say not relating specifically to violence organisations suggests that we have to, to look beyond such content as having a presumed persuasive impact. And we need to look at how groups actually get viewers to engage with their content. So I was looking more at kind of the choice of sites that they use, why they use violence within videos or don't use violence, you know, what, how do they make it attractive? And one cue that came to the fore in this area, very equally as evident in terms of advertising more broadly, but very specifically evident in these videos, relates to branding. And I looked at four uh, types of branding, logos and symbols, flags, hand gestures and dress, and how these violence organizations use these kind of embedded cues around branding to increase their uh, group identity, to appeal to um, looking at hogs, uh, research on group dynamics, you know, how they appeal to others to join them. So it, it, it was one of the, the techniques that they use in terms of kind of pre-persuasion, but to actually gain attention and engagement, which I think is an important observation. And one, as I mentioned, is kind of limited in other research, or as I say, not fully explained. And then the second one relates to myths. And I drew on Elul's concept of myths here and predominantly his concept around the myths of nation and hero. And I felt that this was really kind of important or really relevant because it resonated with other research kind of more applicable to, to violence organizations. Miller Idris noted 
the use of myths and mythology in relation to her work on youth radicalization and uh, Sirius and Lator in relation to military recruitment. So you could see this consistency of the use of myths to recruit. And it was really visually. So my dissertation is about the visual. And, you know, it was really visually apparent in pictures about the pharaohs, about World War One, World War Two, you know, symbolic images around sense of duty, patriotism and the concept of service. And these are all really important because they speak to principles of persuasion around authority, consensus and social proof. So then I looked, you know, beyond what you see to the techniques that people, uh, that uh, violence organizations or content creators use within their videos to kind of reinforce these. And looking at uh, literature from the visual, it became evident that there's no fixed meaning to these videos. So in, in my opinion, at least my findings suggest that the violence organizations, they don't, um, they don't try and control a single meaning because they know that that's really beyond their capacity. These videos are multivalent and multivocal. And by looking at Mirsov's work on intervisuality, it became very apparent that the videos don't actually only speak to potential recruits or supporters, but also to the opposition. And I'll give you one example, an autumn Waffen division video powerful in its silence there's just the video there's no music or anything to it um but one of the scenes is them burning state flags flags from the un black lives matter flags and not only did it uh, come across that the video was speaking to its supporters but equally to its opposition as if they were trying to ignite the opposition and, and when i looked at this further in other videos it be be became very clear that there's a vi visual communication beyond, as I say, just between supporters um, to others and potentially the opposition within these videos. And the, the, then that led me to kind of, as I say, I did want to concentrate on the visual, but when you're looking at video, you have to, or at least I had to acknowledge that the video is be more than just the, the, the visual and modes such as spoken word and music. I needed to consider whether there was cues within them that were powerful and were used to um, communicate with those watching. And it certainly was very evident that all the VOs used, you know, audio, whether it be music or the spoken word, to frame their narratives and cues. And this is kind of known within the communication literature, but not so widely discussed in terms of the um, violence organizations literature or extremist groups, should I say. And then finally, uh, the last kind of cues, I suppose it's an invisible cue in a way, because I had to start looking at these videos, not from what you could purely see, but also what wasn't in the videos. And one thing that really wasn't in the videos or is not in the videos are women. Um, they, they are present. They're present in very low numbers in contrast to the amount of men contrast to the scenes that men are in and the, where they are present, I would have to say they're probably a politically correct token nod to the presence of women. Um, and I speak to that as much to the military videos as to the other videos. And when looking at the literature in this area, um, you know, it wasn't unique to see this or see the absence of it, should I say, that many of these groups do market themselves around masculinities. But there's an emerging level of, or, or area of research in this area that you know, speaks to different types of masculinities. And this was observed, I observed this within the videos, you know, a hyper-masculinity, hegemonic hybrid. So different forms of masculinity within the videos was very pronounced. 
And I suppose when you're viewing videos from what you don't see, what you do see becomes a little bit more clearer. Speaking back to the music and the, the audio, it became very evident that the, the, the choice of music was selected to reinforce narratives around masculinity. And I said about critical geography, I, I never really thought my dissertation would lead me in this direction, but I ended up looking at how scenes of geography and building structures could be used to reinforce perceptions around masculinity. And in so doing, I think it all came together to um, suggest that really these, these videos across all four violence organizations are targeted at men. That's all very fascinating, especially by, I'm very, very intrigued by the theme of masculinity. And so Sheila, how do these cues relate to persuasion exactly? Yeah, I think that's a really important question because I think when you see these cues, like they're not there for no reason. And I, but, but actually trying to understand them, I required kind of another theoretical or another yeah theory or uh, approach to look at this. So I drew on Caldini's principles of persuasion for, for this to look at whether these cues were being, whether I could kind of map the use of these cues into um, the violence organizations trying to create an environment that was conducive to persuasion. And I spoke about the myth of nation and hero. And actually, it was very clear that they spoke to a lot of these principles, authority, social proof, uh, consensus, many of which also resonated with the research on Hagadal uh, or Hagadal's research on groups and group dynamics. So these cues are creating an environment that make it conducive for the content creators then to persuade with different messages of what they would like people to do, whether that's recruitment, whether, as I said, uh, whether that's opposition and incitement. And one thing that became very clear in this kind of more combined theoretical framework was actually the theme of uncertainty. So uncertainty is known within group research to drive people to groups but it's also known to help create environments conducive to persuasion. And within the videos analyzed, there was many situations where violence organizations use a combination of the tempo of music, the spoken word and the visual to actually create kind of a feeling or a perception of uncertainty. So as I said, it's kind of the cues themselves are not unique to the to the research it's actually how they work in with the other theories to help explain how they become per, uh, persuasive but you did mention earlier geography and i have to ask have you found that extremist organizations close geographically to certain violence organizations do their recruitment videos mirror each other or have you found a stark difference or what have been your findings there yeah, so I didn't necessarily find, so I didn't kind of, when I when I picked my, so I divided the world up into four and I was encouraged to look globally. And I think that was really important because so much of the literature is very specific, you know, into different regions. So I did, I divided up the world, but I didn't map, and I picked four regions and then 10 representative groups from each region, but I didn't map them ge geographically in terms of did I pick two from a specific country or the likes? But what I did notice, I suppose, from a geographical perspective relates to Africa. Africa is probably my weakest kind of subset of data. 
there doesn't seem to be the same priority put on videos, or at least I wasn't able to source them. So my videos were all open source videos, which I think is an interesting dimension and maybe one I will look to in the future. But I, I didn't, as I say, kind of map a geographical reference. But in terms of the videos mirroring each other, so I think there's a... <laughs> I can answer this two ways. So when you look at the videos, yes, a drill video from a, a gang is are, are very different from a military recruitment video or an extremist video when one gives it a cursory glance or a watch. But actually, when you start breaking down the techniques being used, and this is the importance of communication studies and advertising and the visual, when you start breaking down the methods and the cues, as I say, are really very similar. But that's not really surprising because, as I argue in my uh, research, that they're using techniques of advertising. And in that way, it's really normal what they're doing. And I think that may be, you know, a, re you know, a, a very what was it, a simple finding, but at the same time, quite an interesting finding that I, I of course, haven't compared them to different types of advertising, you know, from non-violent um, organizations. And it may be something I look to do in the future. But at this point, my research suggests, because I look through the lens of advertising, that the techniques the violence organizations use are very similar to those used within advertising more broadly. Yes. And um, keeping with extremists and violence organizations, do you want to talk about the importance of neutrality in a dissertation or even in any research when analyzing illegal versus legal groups? Yeah, and I think it really is important. And I suppose was one reason why I wanted to do this research. And actually, as I expanded between the, the, the four groups, I thought it was really important not to assume because their motivations or their past um, activities or their future activities were potentially good, bad, illegal, legal, whatever way you want to look at it. I wanted to look at the, these groups and, and their videos from a perspective of their aim. And my, my assumption at the start was they were recruitment or call to action videos. And I think that's important because I think if we come prejudging, maybe, especially for the, the angle of research for mine, so I suppose it, it's very different from different people's research, but I think we come with a lot of biases if we don't try and build a theoretical framework or an approach that supports an objective or a more neutral lens. But I, I know that that can be difficult. As I, I say in one of my chapters, if you're looking at beheading videos, it's very hard to say neutral or to be objective. So the fact that I kind of concentrated predominantly on the softer side of videos, um, the non-explicitly non violent um, videos, it allowed me to look at these from, a, from a, as I say, a more neutral or objective lens. And I think it's important because if we, we go in with pre-assumptions of wrong or right, then that comes out in our research. And we're looking at ways to potentially prevent, reduce or counter um, this material. We need to have not gone in with blinker vision. Now, look, we're all subjective and we have to, we have to acknowledge that nobody's 100% objective. But I think there are ways, and I'd like to think I tried in, with my theoretical framework to structure a way, a different way of looking is what I call it, um, that has as much objectivity and neutrality in it as I could have possibly had. And um, your dissertation then, it aims to answer the question, 
how do people get involved in violence organizations? Do you think, will it also help to answer the why people get involved in violence organizations? Well, now that I'm at the writing up stage, I kind of think I'm getting glimpses of the why. But because it's not a reception study, you know, I can't ultimately test it within this study. But I think it's definitely an area I'd look to the future. And one area that I think would really be needed to answer this also goes with the question of why do people who watch the same content not become radicalized or not become engaged with these violence organizations? And I think that's there's there's glimpses within my dissertation of maybe why, but I look forward potentially to the opportunity to explore. As I said, I really think it's as important to understand why viewers don't have one impact or one outcome, should I say, while others do. Yes, that, that, that's very true. And just the final question that I have for you, why did you personally choose this topic for your dissertation? What drew you well, to looking yeah so I was a police officer for 14 years and then I went to work internationally as a security analyst so I had you know a lot of experience interviewing criminals I was fortunate enough to interview people that had been and fought in Iraq and Syria um, and I often found as I'd sit in front of these people mainly men these were people that I could potentially have a coffee or a drink with, that they didn't seem abnormal or different to me or my friends. They had made different life choices. I mightn't agree with them, but something resonated that there wasn't something so different in these people. And I suppose I always had that under, I suppose that kind of concern that it could have been me had I made different decisions, had I not been brought up where I was brought up with the family I was brought up and the opportunities that I had. And I, I think that was the ultimate reason. And then, of course, you know, I wanted to look at extremist groups and gangs. I'm fascinated by both. But I felt it was important to look beyond that. And I think the desire of my research, I suppose, in doing that is not to say that violence organizations are similar, but uniquely similar. And that makes them different to the wider population. I think I'd love to at one stage progress this further to demonstrate that many of the people that get involved in these organizations are, are very normal, which, which speaks to a lot of the researchers out there. I'm not saying that this is unique in and of itself, but in understanding that and in understanding that these groups are using normal advertising techniques may leave us in a position when we look at that more neutral or objective lens that we just spoke to, maybe puts us in a better position where policies and practices don't necessarily have to kind of come from that position of defending state, defending sovereignty, protecting about uh, violent acts, but more from a position of actually how these groups are using quite normal and regular techniques to persuade people to use violence, whether that's for legal, quasi-legal or uh, illegal um, measures. That's brilliant. Thank you. And thank you so, so much for speaking to me today, Sheila. I do really appreciate it. It's very fascinating, fascinating to learn about your work. No worries. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in this week to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast on the visual techniques used by violence organisations. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or find us on social media via at DublinLPR or on our website, DublinLPR.ie. This podcast will also be aired on Swatch Radio Navi Mumbai and Galway's Flirt FM. Comments, questions and suggestions are very welcome.
via contact at dublinlpr.ie. This was Nee Quinlan and I wish you a pleasant day.